Welcome, everyone, to It's a Wrap with Rap. I am your host, Ron Rappaport. This podcast features extraordinary people who do special things to enrich our lives and people who have overcome major challenges and adversities in their lives to come out on top. Our guest today is Frank King, who is a mental health comedian and suicide prevention speaker and trainer and was a writer for The Tonight Show with Jay Leno for 20 years and a comedian for over 30 years. He was a quarterfinalist on the original Star Search show with Ed McMahon and lost to a puppet. <laughs> he's, he's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning the long, dark journey of the soul into five TEDx talks and sharing his life-saving insights on mental health awareness with associations, corporations, and colleges. Depression and suicide run in his family. He has thought about killing himself more times than he can count. Frank is a motivational public speaker who uses his life's lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide. He does it by coming out, as it were, and standing in his truth, and he does it with humor. Frank believes that where there is humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life, and nobody dies laughing. The right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. Welcome, Frank, to the podcast. Delighted to be here. And uh, I think with that introduction, we're pretty much out of time. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that about the puppet. You probably heard that oh, a man. times. <laughs> Talk about being depressed, Lord. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning. So where did you grow up and what was life like in the early years and say up through high school? I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. I was born in 56. And I told my first joke in fourth grade, kids laughed, teacher was hysterical. And I thought, I'm going to be a comedian. Twelfth grade, they had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up. This is the spring of 75. I did stand-up, I won. I told my mama, I'm going to be a comedian. And she said, son, you're going to college. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care. But you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to school in Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees. Married my high school and college sweetheart. Big mistake. We had nothing in common, but you know what they say. Opposites attract. She yeah. was pregnant. I wasn't. Yeah. And moved to San Diego. And I, I began my insurance career there because I got a job with her father's company. And that's, that's what she really saw for me, what she wanted me to do. But I was married miserably. I was selling insurance. Great business, but not for me and miserable. I was not going to open mic night, which is where I thought I belonged. And I realized, because I live with depression and, and chronic suicidal ideation, that if I didn't make some changes and fast, I was going to literally kill myself. My second thought was, well, wait a minute. I can divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. So that's why my fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Because, I mean, I was, you know, if I stayed put, I was going to kill myself. So why not roll the dice? Why not put it all on one roll? And fortunately, I was right. First, my first time on stage, in the middle of my little five minutes, I heard a voice inside my head that said simply, you're home. And I knew wow. I was going to do it for a living. I had no idea how. And then a year later, a year and several months later, December 26, 85, I had 10 weeks booked on the road in comedy clubs. And it just so happened that was the beginning of big comedy club boom. I just sort of caught the wave. 
and asked my girlfriend, hey, look, I'm going on the road to be a professional stand-up comedian. You want to come along for the ride? And I figured she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. Wow. So we gave up the apartment, our jobs, put everything in storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And she and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. That is a long time. Seven years and change and worked with Rosie and Ellen and Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Adam Sandler and Kevin James opened up for the Beach Boys and Neil Sedaka, Randy Travis, a couple of shows at the Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego on New Year's Eve with Lou Rawls. It was a great run. I had a a ball. Yeah, it sounds that way. Tell us about your family history regarding mental illness. Well, um, my it's called generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. I'll spare you the details because it's horror movie horrible. I read them and yeah. 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 And I don't want to trigger anybody. And, and I myself came close enough to dying by suicide at the height of the recession in April of 2010 after we filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. I say to the audience, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. <laughs> and a friend of mine come up after a keynote. He never heard me say that out loud, but I didn't pull the trigger. He comes up and goes, hey, man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, can you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> so after the recession, the yeah. meeting planner said to me, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You got to teach our audience something. You got to have some content, learning objectives, takeaway." And I'm thinking, what in the heck do I have to teach anybody? And then I got to thinking about my family history of mental illness, more nuts than in a squirrel turd. <laughs> my close call was suicide. And I thought, you know, if I got some training on suicide prevention, I could keynote on that. I could tell my story, tell what I learned, and then teach them how to spot the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide. Yeah. And it turns out that um, a, a male, a man who is not a clinician, talking about important things, emotional things on stage, it is very powerful being that vulnerable. And I realized what was happening was I was giving people in the audience permission to give voice to their feelings. Because even though one person dies of suicide in the U.S. every nine minutes, that's 146 a day. That's a 737 going in the ground like a lawn dart every day. Unbelievable. Hardly anybody talks about it. However, if you bring it up, almost everybody has a story. So that's really what I get paid for. I get paid to come in and start the conversation. When did the uh, depression symptoms and suicidal ideality start? That was in my first marriage. I was 24, I think, and miserable. Like I said, insurance, miserable. Not going to the comedy store, miserable. And I just had that first thought. Why don't you just kill yourself? I knew I was depressed. But then I, I, that was the first time I remember having that thought. A friend of mine says, it comes out of nowhere. It's like a, a plane towing a banner over a football stadium. Yeah. You know, it just goes by. Why don't you yeah. kill yourself? So that was the first one. And that, that got me out of that marriage and out of the insurance business and into comedy. And, I mean, I wasn't depressed as a child. Uh, you know, I, was a bit ner- I was a bit nerdy, but not depressed. I loved high school. almost stayed an extra year. And... Just because back then you could, you could actually opt to stay an extra year. I would take typing, some more Spanish, work on my trigonometry. And see, I wasn't really 
aware of my depression and suicidality until I married my first wife, who's a wonderful woman. We just had no business being together. Yeah. So can you tell us what, how would you uh, define a mental health comedian? Well, the, somebody asked me, does being a comedian hold you back, keep you from getting bookings to speak on suicide prevention? I said, no, it's just the reverse. They want someone who has lived experience, who can yeah. speak, you know. They want someone who uh, has learning objectives, takeaways, you know, teach them something. Sure. And the fact that I can do that and be, you know, funny along the way, funny personal anecdotes, not jokes, but stories, oftentimes pushes me over the top. There's a psychological principle and a reason, there's a reason they call it comic relief. Because if you have something serious to tell somebody or teach somebody and you do that, and then you give them a little comic relief before you drop the next serious piece on them, then it's easier to take that second and third and fourth serious piece of information if they have chuckled a bit in between. Very interesting. Yeah, that sounds that sounds right. Why do people attempt suicide and what sorts of things or warning signs uh, can contribute to someone feeling suicidal? Well, the common wisdom is they want to die. I, I don't believe that is the case for most people. I, I, I don't think it's about wanting to die. I didn't want to die. Right. I simply wanted to end the pain. Yeah. Oftentimes, I believe it's just about ending the pain. Uh, let's, let's back Let's go upstream a little bit. Okay. And symptoms of depression. Um, okay. Talk uh, If they um, have trouble getting up in the morning, but rally in the afternoon. If they... Um, eat too much or can't eat, sleep too much or can't sleep. And a big one is if they're letting their personal hygiene go, you know, if they've been pretty well put together for years and all yeah. of a sudden hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean. It may be because they're having trouble getting out of bed in the morning right. to run a little wash, hit the shower. Uh, what, what don't you say to somebody who's depressed, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, turn that frown upside down. Have you tried fish oil? <laughs> yeah. What you do say is, look, I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, it will get better. I'll take the time. I'll help you get the treatment. And here's the tough one. You have to ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? If you can't ask that question, find somebody who can't. Now, let's say they're not forthcoming about their thoughts of suicide, but you're thinking, you know what? And I always say, go with your gut. How would you know? What signs, what signs are there? They may be thinking about suicide. Well, talking about death and dying, Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. I've got a friend whose son died by suicide. He had a horrible heroin addiction. She thought he was simply a junkie. Um, it turns out he was probably self-medicating a mental illness. And he yeah. was a musician. He wrote lyrics and music, and he carried a notebook with him everywhere he went with his music and lyrics in it never set it down took it to the bathroom with him wow his mom got it after he was gone and she realized the reason he was taking the bathroom with him is he undoubtedly did not want her to find it and begin thumbing through it because in the lyrics of the songs it was very obvious what was what was happening he was spiraling downward and it was obvious that at some point he would probably take his life so uh, also gathering the means whether it's stockpiling medication or buying a firearm 
and oh, getting your personal affairs in order, especially giving away prized possessions. Yeah. Because you want to make sure they go to the people they want them to go to when they're gone. Right. I spoke at a dental convention and there were two dentists there. And several years later, because I went back to a convention in April and one of the dentists was there and on stage, he said, Frank, you don't know this, but I've got a funny story about you. I saw you two or three years ago at this convention and you were talking about how people who are suicidal give away prized possessions. He goes, well, my wife and I are downsizing. Kids are gone, married, got their own families. So we're going to get a, you know, 1300 square foot ranch. And so there's nowhere to put all the stuff we got in this four bedroom, you know, like 3000 square foot house. So I've been selling things, giving away things. And there are several things that I put in like a next door on a post that I was giving away things I really love, but just don't have room for. Well, the other dentist who had been at the convention and heard me say, giving away prize possession, yeah. called the dentist that I was talking to in April and said, man, are you okay? And he goes, well, why would you think I'm not okay? Because you're giving away prize possessions. And Frank said, when you give away prize possessions. <laughs> and he goes, oh man, thanks for asking. But no, I just don't have room. Would you like those golf clubs? So um, here's well, one that's that counterintuitive and extremely dangerous. They have been depressed forever and all of a sudden for no apparent reason, they are. Let me take a moment from the podcast to tell you about a very important book. When your spouse dies, you instantly earn 100 points, the highest value on the psychological scale that measures human stress. Losing a spouse is considered the most stressful event that can befall a human. Author Kathleen Ho has earned those 100 points. And she shares her strategies for moving beyond grief in her 2020 book, Living Forward After Loss, Rebuilding Your Life After Losing Your Life Partner. When the life partner you once had is no longer here, your world collapses in front of your eyes. You may alternate between great pain and numbness and find yourself unsure of how to continue to live without them. The loss of a loved one through death can be a harrowing experience that can require years of recovery. Author Kathleen Hull had been married to David Bigby for 10 years at the time of his passing in 2015. The life they built together fell apart, but with the support of her family and friends, Kathleen was able to bounce back to life two years later. Now she seeks to help those who are struggling with the death of loved ones to honor her late husband's life. Kathleen provides practical strategies that grievers can adopt in their journey to recovery and encourages them to consider whether they have made the most of the precious time they have on earth. The do's and don'ts of supporting others in grief is a valuable inclusion as people invariably say precisely the wrong thing. In this guide, Kathleen shares her life-changing journey to rebuild her life after losing her life partner and offers advice and encouragement to those who are grieving the loss of a loved one. One reviewer stated, this is a must read for anyone who has lost a loved one and the book walks you through the process of healing and moving forward in life. A must read, I highly recommend. Another reviewer stated, this book helped my loved one get through very tough times and fully recover. Thank you, Kathleen, for your guidance. The book, Living Forward After Loss, Rebuilding Your Life After Losing Your Life Partner is available on Amazon. Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Target Online. The book will be listed in the podcast notes and on the website, it's a wrap with rap.com. Are on top of the world. Now, the and you're relieved because thank God, finally. However, 
They may be on top of the world because they've chosen time, place, and method. And they know this is going to sound familiar. They know the pain is coming to an end. Yeah. That's why that's dangerous. Are they truly happy or are they happy because they know it's, you know, the pain is finite. Frank, what kind uh, of sense of humor do you personally have? Dark. 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 Oh, yeah. In my first TEDx talk, um, I said, you know, I did some research on TEDx and the topic of suicide. I figured I would see how other people handle it. And I thought when I went to TED.com, there would be probably dozens of talks on suicide. So I get there and there are three, only three. Oh. And I thought, well, duh, if you're really good at suicide, you're probably not going to be recording a TED talk. Yeah. Yeah. That's my kind of, uh, my grandmother killed herself with a gas stove. My great aunt killed herself with an old Loctite refrigerator. I said to the audience, what is it with my family and major appliances? I drive by Sears, I tear up. So the darker, the better for me, for the humor, uh, clean comedy, because that's where the money is. And, and I really am a clean, I mean, I, I, I tried a dirty period briefly. I was in Vegas. An old guy came up, you know, like kind of 80 years old, old comic. And he goes, hey, kid, you need to drop the dirty jokes. You don't have the face for it. And he's <laughs> absolutely right. Now, there's, there is a 2019 documentary titled Laughing Matters that features Sarah Silverman, Chris Gethard, Neil Brennan, Wayne Brady, among others. Yeah. Rain, Rain Wilson, star uh, in The Office, was the brainchild of the documentary. So Wilson told the New York Post that it's hard to find a comedian, comic actor, or improv actor that hasn't struggled with anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation at some point. Would you please enlighten us about the statistics about mental illness occurring right now? And what is the correlation between comedians and mental illness? Well, and I have a, a podcast of my own called the Suicide Prevention Punchline because so many comedians, creators, entertainers, and others that fall into that category die by suicide. I, I, I believe, and I did a TEDx on this, that, that mental illness is not necessarily a singularity, simply a disability. It could be a duality, a combination of disability and ability. The TEDx is called Mental with Benefits because I kept running across people who were mentally ill but had some amazing talent of some kind. Uh, writer, singer, dancer, comedian, athlete, politician, whatever. So I, I think that, that in a lot of people who are creative, there is that, there's the, you know, the disability and then same brain, same wiring, ability. And okay. if it gets out of balance... You know, it, I think it can it can lead to, you know, dark thoughts and then eventually to to suicide. It's um, people who are creators die more often by suicide than non-creative entertainer, comedian, whatever types. Um, again, I, I think it goes back to the fact that that's just it's the, the way the brain is. I believe that my comedic ability is simply the flip side of my depression, thoughts of suicide. Same wiring. I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to process information the way my brain does. Yeah. And in my TED Talk, I said, look, I don't think I'm broken. I think I was made this way with, the, with this disability and with these abilities. And it's all part of the same package. Right. So, and, so it's a balance and it can get out of whack. 
Yeah, and especially if there's if the person decides to self-medicate with drugs and alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that as a friend of mine said, beer can quiet the voices in your head for a time. Yeah. But it's not a good long-term strategy. So without therapy and some medication, yeah, you know, then and now Robin Williams, I believe, was bipolar, living with bipolar disorder. Because he was so, you know, when he was manic, he was just amazing. Uh and he lived to be 62. He was having all sorts of issues. He had heart surgery, which is depressing. He had a Parkinson's-like illness that was, was affecting his, his um, movement and his memory. And I think he just, you know, he just got tired of, of fighting it. And yeah. I tell people, it's like that Greek character Sisyphus. Sisyphus gave fire to man, and, they, and the other gods got together and punished him by making him roll the rock up a hill every day. And the idea was once he got the rock over the top of the hill, he could retire. But of course, every time he got near the top, it would roll back down to the bottom. Having a mental illness is like that. Every morning, every morning, you wake up, there's a rock and a hill. Some days a rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Some days a rock is a boulder and the hill is, you know, Everest. Yeah. Every day, regardless, there's a rock and a hill and you got to move it. And it people just wear out. You know, they just wake up one morning and simply can't move the rock anymore. Yeah. Did you ever confide in anyone about how you were feeling at no. any time? No, I told the eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. I was not ambivalent in the least. So I was in the two out of 10 and nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to their attempt. And I, I didn't give any hints. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I had a plan, time, place, method. And um, that, by the way, if somebody, if you ask somebody if they're having thoughts of suicide and they say yes, Next question you ask them is, well, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan, what is your plan? And if it's if it's detailed to time, place, and method, you need to try to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline. Now, if it's not particularly well detailed, what I say is ask them flat out, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, then this, I think, is the most important question. Well, then tell me why not. Make them give voice. Yeah whatever is keeping them here do people uh with suicidal thoughts are they just faking happiness going through their daily routines yeah, <laughs> yeah. short answer yeah. um there's a reason i have a screen actors guild card i'm uh i'm a good actor and many people with mental, mental illness are and they I, i've said many times i paste on a smile slip on my shoes and walk through the world as if nothing is wrong. That's why, you know, I, I came out on stage at age 56 in that first Ted talk as depressed and suicidal. And nobody knew my wife, my family, my friends, nobody had any idea wow. that I was living with that kind of darkness and, and you no, know, don't want to be a burden. There's not a lot most people can do for you. Um, plus there are those oh so helpful souls, you know, um, have you tried this? Have you tried that? You should do this. You should do that. People ask me, what do you, what, I've got a friend who's depressed. What should I say to them? Well, first of all, don't say anything. Just listen, just co-sign whatever BS they're waiting through to begin with. Now park your judgment and any philosophy and religion, whatever, however, and, and meet them where they are and, you know, let them talk and right. share the burden. So why do you think, uh, suicide is such a, a taboo subject with people. I think it's where drugs and alcohol were 
70, 80 years ago, there was a reason in the beginning that alcoholics were anonymous yeah. because a lot of people felt like it was, it was a moral failing or a character flaw. And most people, I think, agree at this point in time that it is a disease, substance abuse disorder. And I think, I think mental illness lags behind. I think some people still feel that, you know, you can't see it. Yeah. I've got a cousin who's got bipolar disorder and she goes, you know, I wish I had cancer because I, you know, my head would be shaved and, you know, people would be baking me casseroles and because they could see and wrap their mind around what's happening to me. But as someone living with bipolar, you can't see it. They haven't got any context or they have trouble understanding it. And so it's, it's just my, my goal in life is to make talking about depression, thoughts of suicide as easy as talking about sports and the weather. I would assume uh, employment would have a, would be an issue. Oh yeah. Uh, There are some careers where coming forward, coming out as depressed and suicidal can be terribly career limiting. The military being one of them, physicians, doctor being another. Right. I have a friend, she anesthesiologist, now retired, 40 years anesthesiologist. She graduated medical school and she was applying for a job and they asked her on the application, have you ever taken any of these medications? They're all psychotropic medications. Have you ever been diagnosed with any of these conditions? And she checked no and no because she felt like if she checked yes and yes, that she wouldn't get the job. Three months later, she finds herself standing on a bridge about ready to jump because she stopped taking her meds. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, there are careers where, and Robin Williams, if you're going to make a movie, the production company buys a life insurance policy on you to cover their expenses in case you die of any cause during shooting. And if you tell the insurance agent that you are depressed, you believe you have, you know, you're living with bipolar disorder and you're having thoughts of suicide, there's a good chance you're not going to get that policy. Yeah, I would assume so. That's true. Yeah. He was very forthcoming about his drug addiction, treatment, and recovery. He joked about it quite a bit, but rarely, if ever, said anything about his mental health state. Yeah. What are some of the biggest mistakes people with mental illness make? By not being diagnosed, I, I had a woman wrote me yesterday on Facebook Messenger. Her husband has um, MS, very depressed, talking of suicide. And what do I do and i said well first of all see if you can't get him evaluated by a clinician to find out is it just garden variety depression or is it something else and if he's diagnosed then see if you can't get him to take the medication because with time and treatment things will get better but you've got to take that first step and get evaluated figure out what it is you know what it is you have yeah and and how, how should, best should we treat it? Now, has destigmatization and recognition, say, in the last few years resulted, uh, in your opinion, uh, in more people coming forward and seeking help? Yes, uh, especially in COVID. I was talking to a woman this morning from the uh, American Foundation of Suicide Prevention Los Angeles. And she said, Frank, the numbers are coming in for 2020 suicides during COVID down 2.1% down. Wow. 
I was expecting a huge spike. Yeah. She said what spiked was, is they were getting um, hundreds of thousands of more calls to the suicide prevention lifeline. Okay. So what's happening is more people are actually reaching out before they get to the point where they're about to slit their wrist. When I speak, I say, look, don't wait until you're standing on the bridge, you know, the railing to call the suicide prevention lifeline. If you're cycling down, if you're, you know, sliding, give them a call, you know, uh, let's take care of this upstream before we get all the way downstream with it, you know, jumping off a bridge. Right. So yeah, so it's, it's, it's getting better. It's not, great yet but at least more people are reaching out men men eight out of ten suicides in the u.s these days are men right mostly age 45 54 and men tend not to talk about those things it's um it's called toxic masculinity or where i grew up in north carolina it was called big boys don't cry and they don't they don't come out and talk about those kinds of things and and it's not just mental illness i mean they wait too long to get a colonoscopy or take the psa test for your prostate or you know they got a lump in their testicle they don't do anything about it for years they tend you know because we're tough we're men we're pull ourselves up by our bootstraps we haven't got time for infirmity well, um, well i can relate to that because i'm uh, i'm a male breast cancer survivor and oh. I, I advocate for the male breast cancer coalition and it's very uh, we run into the same problem with the toxic masculinity where the guys just don't want to talk about it. Even after they're treated, um, they get a lump in their breast and they let it grow to the size of half a baseball. And yeah. by the time they catch it, it's stage four. So, uh, you know, we're, we're doing, you know, that advocacy work out there to get the word out that, Hey, you don't have a woman's disease, you know, <laughs> Even though everything's pink, we're we're trying to put that blue back into the back into the equation. Yeah, and and one of the powerful things about a man on stage is not a clinician bearing his soul and you know warts and all. And I get a little choked up when I tell my stories. Um, vulnerability, as Brene Brown would say, is my superpower. Yeah, and it it encourages other people to you know come forward and oh, share yeah. their stories. It takes a lot of courage to do what you're doing. Well, this is another question. It's kind of related. To, it's related to COVID. What have the effects of COVID had on the mentally ill? We touched upon the suicide rate, but what about the other mental illness? Well, actually, I've got a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Don't worry so much about your mentally ill friends. Because I realized early on that my high-functioning mentally ill friends Almost all of them have a self-care plan and other techniques to be able to simply get out of bed in the morning in an uncertain world. And for us, it's an uncertain world, whether there's a pandemic or not, and that those skills are transferable. So I've, I've done um, innumerable podcasts and a goodly number of keynotes teaching otherwise neurotypical people how to create a self-care plan, what the concept of gamification is, and how to establish a routine. The through line on all those three is you're controlling the things you can control and let the rest of it go. Something people with mental illness learn very early on. Yeah. And so just simple techniques, transferable techniques that you can use to, because what worries me is all these people who never been depressed before, and then they have what's called situational depression based on the pandemic. But how do you know it's depression if you've never had it? I mean, how do you know why you can't get out of bed in the morning? Why is this? Yeah. 
That's what worries me is they, they've never experienced it. Now, the upside of that, Ron, is once they realize they are depressed, hopefully down the road, after all this is said and done, they'll have a whole lot more respect for people like me who are depressed because they've had a little taste of it. Right. I mean, I've got friends who are far worse, far more depressed than I. And I am amazed they're able to even get out of bed in the morning given what they're living with. What are some of the biggest myths out there about people with mental illness? Uh, it's a choice. Somebody said to me, choose joy. I said, unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I think we're out of luck. And <laughs> B, don't you think if I could have done that, I would have done that four decades ago? So that's one. Uh, another one is that people who are depressed and suicidal, it's 24-7, 365. And with therapy and, 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 you know, medication, I have many more good days than bad. I had a heart attack walking the dogs in the woods all by myself about a half mile from the car. I had T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. And if I had been in a bad place that day, I could have sat down on the trail, let the heart attack run its course, and only the dogs would know that I chose to die. It would just appear that I had a heart attack and couldn't get out of the woods. Fortunately, I was in a good place that morning. I wanted to live and I wanted to get the dogs back to the car because we were right off a busy road and that would not end well. So we're like the Marines. We never leave anybody behind. Right. So uh, my, my only goal was to get back to the car that half mile and get the dogs in the car. If I drop dead, then fine. I've done my job. Um, but that's that's another where you, you just figure they're that way all the time. Um. Yeah, that'd be a myth for sure. Yeah, and the um, with suicide, they're just looking for attention. They're just being melodramatic. Nobody who talks about it ever does it. Those are all myths. Nobody can stop a suicide. That's a myth. Anybody can stop a suicide it, simply by starting the conversation. Those are all myths. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of mystery surrounding mental illness. I wish, Ron, I said this to my wife, that the Vulcan mind meld, you know, that thing where they, my mind to your mind, your mind to my mind. Yeah. I, I wish that were a thing. Cause I said to my wife, if you could just do that with me, get into my head when I'm spiraling down, I give you about five minutes before you come out screaming. Yeah. Somebody said to me, you need to take resilience training. I said, here's the deal. My most suicidal friends are also my most resilient friends because if they were not they would not be here exactly exactly can yeah, you so go we, we should be teaching resilience not taking resilience can you go over again what to say and not to say to a person who tells us they are thinking of suicide well again don't say you're being melodramatic nobody who talks about it ever does it you're simply looking for attention what you do say is do you have a plan and if they have a plan, what is your plan? And if the plan is detailed, time, place, method, you need to do your best to get them to a mental health clinician. At the very least, get them on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone. The volunteer on the other end will do what they can to get the phone into the hand of the person in crisis. If they're in immediate danger to themselves or others, you have to call 911. Got no choice. The problem with that is they'll be arrested, taken in front of a judge, and they'll determine whether they need a three-day involuntary detention order, you know, lockdown. Right. Yeah. Uh, if they have a plan, but it's not 
really well formed as the time place method, what I recommend is you say, well, tell me, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, you say, okay, then tell me why not? Why not? Okay. Make them give voice to whatever it is keeping them here. Can you tell us about how the telephone counseling and suicide hotline services work? You know, it's, I think for most people, it's, it's not so much therapy as it is a way for someone to plant a seed of hope. There's somebody out there on the other end of the line. And now they have a text line for younger people. You text the word help or connect to 741741 because younger people are more forthcoming generally in text. Yeah. And old, old people like me who like to talk on the phone. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think it's simply the concept of, and they're well-trained. They're trained in safe language. They know what to say, what not to say, and how to guide the conversation. And, you know, we, the sad thing is we can't save everybody. So you're going to lose somebody at some point. Yeah. But, but simply again, by starting the conversation with that person and being there for them. I give out my cell number every time I speak. I say, look, if you're, having, if you're, if you're suicidal, call the hotline. If you're having a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my phone number. Because I'm not going to judge. You don't have to explain anything to me. I'm just going to co-sign whatever BS you're wading through. And again, I'm not a clinician. I'm simply planting seeds of hope. I had a guy call me the other day, terribly depressed. He said, I'm, I'm having thoughts of suicide. And I said, do you have a plan? And he said, well, I, I picked up a schedule for Amtrak. Uh-huh. He's planning on stepping in front of a train. I said, well, you know, there are a lot of people who at this point would say, promise me you're not going to kill yourself. I'm not going to ask you that. What I am going to ask you is, request of you is, don't do it that way. Because inevitably, what's going to happen is, when you step up on those tracks, you're going to lock eyes with the engineer and change their life forever. So if you're going to go, for God's sakes, don't take somebody with you like that. That's the benefit of calling somebody who's crazy and extremely blunt is when they go, I, I got a train schedule and you go, don't freaking do that. I don't care if you kill yourself, but don't do it that way. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Now, it is quite likely that some people who are listening to this podcast will one day attempt suicide. Talk about them forming uh, what they call a no suicide contract with themselves and what to have on hand. Well, what you need to do is make sure you don't have the means to die by suicide. And that's one of the signs of thoughts of suicide is collecting, you know, stockpiling medication or buying a firearm. So if you are, you know, if you are suicidal, actively suicidal, I would suggest not having anything around the house that could do you in. Right. Um, the, you know, that's one of the reasons that the suicide rate in the U S is so high is that, that regardless of if you, how you feel about firearms, there are hundreds of millions of them. And easily obtainable. Uh, yeah. I mean, there are waiting periods, but, you know, I mean, a week or whatever for background check. And then you have a, you have a gun. Um, I would, I would, if, and this is from a guy who didn't reveal anything until I was 56 to anybody, my wife, my family, my friends. I recommend people when they, when they're ready to share their struggles with people they know, love and trust. It's kind of like running a NASCAR race. You're going to need a pit crew because at some point the wheels are going to come off. And I can't see somebody running a NASCAR race 
and the wheels are starting to come off and they're thinking, I need to hire a crew. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have them on hand, you know, ready, willing, able, understanding what you're going through and how to help. So I would recommend that you, um, you know, you have a pit crew. You have people you know, love and trust that you can and share with them what you're struggling with. Yeah. My wife said to me the other day, because I didn't tell her I was depressed. She goes, why do you tell me you're depressed? I said, well, you know, I don't want to burn you. She goes, look, here's the deal. If you tell me, then I know that if you're grump, grumping around the house, you're not angry at me. I know what's happened. And, and then I can, I can then, you know, formulate a plan to help if I know what's going on. Yeah. I don't know, then I have to assume, and it's not good for either one of us. So when you're ready, Tell the folks you know, love, and and watch one of my TED Talks or two of my TED Talks. I've had people from all over the world send me a note by way of YouTube. Guy in Scandinavia, 40 years old, lovely wife, darling eight-year-old daughter, great job. Said he couldn't remember the last time he's happy. Said he thought it was just him. And he stumbled across one of my TED Talks, and he realized, oh, my God, it's not just me. Yeah. There are lots of people. I think that I've had people come up. Every speech I've given except one since 2014, there's been somebody in the audience who has chronic suicidal ideation, which I have. And I tell a story about my car, you know, it broke down. I had three thoughts, get it fixed, buy a new one. I just kill myself. And it's happened over and over and over. People, a young woman came up at a college show and said, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, we're going to tell you, it made me weak. How did it make you weak? She goes, you know, your story about your car when it broke down, you had three thoughts, get it fixed, buy a new one. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I thought I was just some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I'm not in fact alone. And I wept. Well, so that's knowing the power. that our, that's the power okay. of advocacy. Yes. Peer counseling, advocacy, sharing your story, stepping up and stepping out. My wife calls it standing in your own truth. Yeah. Um, gives people the, you know, the encouragement to hopefully come forward. And I have had meeting planners say to me, you know, months after I was there, you have no idea the impact. The people that came forward that we had no idea yeah. were struggling. What advice do you have for the survivors, the friends and family members that remain? Uh, their guilt, their anger, their resentment. Uh, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, because their survivor's guilt. Uh, they're angry at the person who did it. They have survivor's guilt because maybe they thought I should have been nicer to them or I was supposed to have a beer with them that night, but I had to pick up the kids from softball. And maybe if I'd gone over or spent more time with them or, or why didn't he tell me? I would have done anything for him. Why didn't he say something? Um, there's a, actually, there's a process. It's called suicide postvention. Need to get some publications, a publication, a book on suicide postvention. What often happens with companies, somebody dies, long-term employee, they just sweep it under the carpet. He's here one day, gone the next figure, let's put that behind us. Problem is like you said, people are angry. People are, you know, they're, they've got survivor's guilt. They've got all sorts of questions. And so you need to bring somebody in who can decode all that. You know, put the puzzle pieces, everybody had a piece of the puzzle, but nobody had the entire puzzle. Otherwise somebody would have stopped it. Right. So a good suicide postvention counselor will put that puzzle together. Then everybody steps back and looks at it and thinks, oh, man, it's right there. You can see it. 
yeah. in this behavior. Because what you're looking for is a pattern. You know, giving away prized possessions, um, you know, so forth and so on. Getting his affairs in order. Saying things like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about me after next week. Well, does that mean you're moving or going back to college or the, the you know, no, they're going to end their lives. Tell us about uh, how you are advocating for awareness. What, what kind of things you're doing right now? Well, two co-authors and I have a four book series on men's mental health. And if you go to the mental health comedian.com, the mental health comedian.com, I narrate, I'm narrating the books for audible. I've narrated the first one and there's an MP3 on my website. You can download for free. Just give me an email address. And it's unabridged, the first book on men's mental health. It's a, it's a manual. We made it look like an automobile owner's manual, so guys will pick it up. And it's full of automobile metaphors, like the pit crew. Like, and by the way, more women buy it than men. And I think it's because they have such a hard time figuring out men. They're hoping there'll be something in the book because it's, it's like a chicken soup for the soul, 12 stories, 12 guys. Yeah. Each one has an issue. And each one tells the reader how they're coping. And there's exercises and suggestions and so forth in the books. The uh, My favorite line, I wrote this because it was two women that came up with the idea. And they came to me and they said, Frank, can you make it funny? And can you add the car metaphors? I said, let me get this straight. You two ladies are writing a book on men's mental health. Don't you think you might need, oh, I don't know, a guy? So they may be a co-author. Uh, the joke is, don't you wish the man in your life had a check engine light, a mental check engine light? So when it goes off, he goes to the mental mechanic, put him up on the rack. Bob, of course, you're depressed. You're two quarts low on serotonin. Yeah. So it's full of stuff like pit crew. You know, men should, if men took care of their cars like they take care of their brains, they better buy a bus pass because, you know, they ignore their colon and their prostate and their brain. Yeah, when I'm advocating out there uh, for the Male Breast Cancer Coalition, I'm always going to to advocate to the women because the women will talk to the men. If I oh, yeah. if I talk to the men directly, it's just going to go in one ear and out the other. What are you? Yeah, most, I'm sorry. I've had two aortic valve replacements. It ran. It runs in my family. My dad had a bad aortic valve. I inherited, so I've had it replaced twice. And I was dragging my feet on getting it done the first time. And so a cousin of mine is a radiologist who had seen my echocardiogram, called my wife at 11 at night and asked her if she knew where my life insurance policies were. Wow. Next day, I'm back in for an echo. And within three weeks, I'm in the hospital getting my chest cracked. You motivate the wife or the spouse. Yeah. 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 What are you most excited about going forward in your advocacy? And do you have any uh, new efforts planned for the future? Well, I'm recording today my sixth TEDx talk on mental health called Depressive Realism. Maybe the glass really is half empty. And I've just pitched another one, my seventh one. And I've got 25 or six TEDx coaching clients. I would love to see each and every one of them get a TEDx and move their speaking careers forward. And a number have in the last uh, few months gotten, they're mostly virtual, but they've gotten them. Um, well, my, my bottom line goal in life, Ron, is pay off the mortgage by March 29th, 2023, my wife's 65th birthday, because by then I'll have Medicare, by then she'll have Medicare, and she works outside the home strictly 
I mean, she gets a good paycheck, but it's really for the health insurance. Yeah. She has job lock for health insurance. So once I get Medicare and she gets Medicare, she can come home and be my chief of staff, Ron, yep. and grocery shop and take care of the pets. And I'll never have to cut the grass again. Well, I'm retired and I'm, I'm still cutting the grass. So. Oh, man. <laughs> Frank, uh, what, are the, what are the takeaway points you would like people to know about mental health issues affecting their lives and suicide ideations? Well, you need to, if you see something, say something. If you've, if you've been following this podcast, we talked about the signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts, of suicide, what to say and do, what not to say, what not to do. So what you're looking for is patterns. And understand that eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent and nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to their attempt, which tells me the vast majority of people want somebody to interrupt, see something, say something and step in. So I would encourage you to go with your gut. If you feel like somebody's struggling, ask them and be persistent. Okay. No, I'm fine. No, you're not fine. I, I heard a podcast the other day. There was a guy talking about the signs of depression and you got them all. So let's go someplace quiet and talk about this. Frank, so starting the conversation. The good news is, I say this in all my keynotes and my TED Talks. The good news is you can make a difference, you can save a life, and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here. And that is starting a conversation. Starting the conversation. Frank, how can people contact you? TheMentalHealthComedian.com Okay. Is there an email? Uh, yeah, Frank at TheMentalHealthComedian. And if you go to The Mental Health Comedian, my phone number is there, email address is there, all my social media is there. If you type in the mental health comedian in Google, you'll find my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, all the. Okay. I'm old, but I'm, you know. You're up to date. I, I will list all your contact information in the, in the podcast notes. And to come out and tell the world about your mental health experiences is a brave thing to do. Frank is one of those extraordinary people that do it to help others who are traveling down the same path he once did. Thank you, Frank, for enriching all our lives with what you do in your advocacy work, and I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. This podcast is now a proud member of the HC Universal Network of Podcasts. Check out our episodes at hcuniversalnetwork.com and all the other great podcasts on the network. We welcome comments and suggestions to make the podcast better. You can email us at it's a wrap with rap at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, it's a wrap with rap, and visit the podcast website at itsarapwithrap.com. Thanks everyone for listening. Stay safe. And for now, it's a wrap.